Chapter Eight of Riolaro, the Archipelago of Exiles by Godfrey Swevin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Abstinence. Why should they refrain from the gifts that God in his goodness had bestowed on them? Thus argued a party of gilded youth with me as they polecatted the air of a gorgeous room with their bamboos. My senses had so far resisted the paralyzing fume and its nausea that they were able to fumble about amongst arguments. And I tried to break their backs with their own rod. Why did the Aleophanians abstain so rigidly from God's good gift, the juice of the grape? You have got the stick by the wrong end, they laughed, and the bellwether of them took up the tale. God's gift is transformed into poison by fermentation, and so is Koanu by fire, I broke in. But Pyrenity, so they call their intoxicating spirit, is seductive, Kuananu is repulsive. The one will master the strongest man. The other has to be mastered. I acknowledge the correctness of his distinction, but urge that all pleasures and pains in time suffer transmutation into their opposites. A habit that in its nascence is pleasing becomes loathsome in its supremacy, and one that is hard to learn gratifies the vanity, if not the senses, when mastered. The stoic rampant revels in his stoicism and goes to all lengths with it. The Epicurean has soon skimmed the cream of his luxuries and has to suppress all his other natural needs and desires, like a stoic that he may still the violence of his overgrown appetites or give them some hard-won novelty. I envied the stoic his Epicurean enjoyment of his victory over life and passion. I pitied the Epicurean wallowing in the world, that sty of desire. All its best and most luscious things trampled underfoot. But we have chosen a plant to bear those fumes must ever demand resolution. I unhinged his sentence with, Yes, in those who cannot indulge in it. You speak truly, he said, and therein lies the nobleness of the choice. It is the great philanthropic plant, it is for the discipline and maturation of others that canoers sacrifice their finer sensations. This discussion would have fallen into a scramble of wits, for it was hard by any means to get the better of the subtlety of this people. So I held my peace, and as I listened I learned and admired. They were too wise and virtuous to hope and guzzle and carouse. They would not steep their senses in sottish oblivion. They would have no dealings with a poison that sapped the will and made the human system all throat and liquid fire. Who would turn this inwards into a chemist's alembic, his skull into a vat? I had heard eloquence like this in my own country and cowered before the tornado. I knew there could be no safety but in flight. They were indeed a most ascetic people in all but the use of words. I tried in the first two or three hostelries to obtain a little wine, but the attempt had such a paralyzing effect on mine hosts that I had to refrain. Anything that even smelled of fermentation was a horror. 
it is true that i had seen many wine presses and distilleries in the lower part of the town but it was explained their products were meant for the shops of chemists and for the use of preservation of fruit and museum specimens no free man was allowed to touch the accursed thing only criminals and bondsmen were permitted within the walls of these factories of the stygian fluid and then only under superintendence of government agents who commanded the position from smell-proof viewpoints afar lest even a whiff of the tartarian brew should reach their nostrils i now understood why these aleofanians when analyzing the character of their neighbors always introduced as the climax of the latter or depreciatory part of their analysis devotion to museums and to fruit preserving and in the nearest approach i had seen to make to a quarrel the one hurled at the other the epithet olecloman or museumist and got in reply pulp or fruit preserver whilst both reddened as if stung no house in the marble city was without a large room devoted to natural history every man was an enthusiastic collector of biological specimens and in this room there hung long rows of shelves of scarabean bottles each filled with some clear liquid in which floated a bug or centipede or some small parasite they were as enthusiastic orchardists and generally spent a third of the year in bottling the fruits of their trees autumn was the time of their most uproarious festivals and maddest junketings this sober state and abstinent people broke loose like bacchanals the fruit they indulged in they explained fermented within them it was almost a painful spectacle for me after the admiration i had felt for their self-abnegation they had such a horror for all fermented liquor that they called their devil and it by the same name pyramide and one of the wise men philosophizing over the annual outbreak of high spirits said that according to their own proverbial philosophy the best way to confine a devil was to swallow him and keep him down he might pester the man who formed his prison house but he would be kept from all other wickedness thus the autumn revel of merriment was perhaps but another instance of the great virtue of the people their eagerness to save their neighbors from evil they annually swallowed the devil to prevent him for a short time at least from going about like a roaring lion seeking whom he might devour at other times of the year i often found them men as well as women sitting in their houses and shedding copious tears over the sadness of this mortal state so overwhelmed they were with the thought that their words jostled one another in strange confusion and if they rose to bid me farewell they fell upon my neck and wept or collapsed in the greatness of their grief upon the couch or floor this tenderness of heart was widespread amongst the upper classes for days would they weep thus over the woes of existence and still more unmanning was their sorrow for death of friends they would sit stupefied by the blow for hours together unable to speak articulately and a whole week or month of sickness and silent confinement to their bedroom would follow the stroke how sorely stricken this people were i could not have realized but my experience 
the death of a dear friend occurred on an average once a month in the life of some fashionable aleofanians at certain periods of the year but especially during the severe season winter and when they rose from bed and appeared in public their haggard woe-begone faces told the agony through which they had passed surely fate was too hard upon this much bereaved nation as hard as it was upon their teeth for the loss of a tooth under ether or stupefying gas was equally frequent one friend whom i had to see often suffered grievously i counted during my acquaintance with him forty-five losses of a tooth under ether but nature was strangely beneficent to the aleofanian jaw she seemed to compensate for the losses almost immediately my friend had as many teeth when i left as when i saw him first and with all these recurrent bereavements and the illnesses that followed you may imagine how important a functionary was the physician in social life he was the father confessor of the household he was generally a soft-voiced stooping-shouldered silent-footed man he condescended and yet he flattered he insinuated himself into a man's confidence and still more into a woman's by veiled compliments he mastered by seeming to accept his patient's opinions he prescribed what suited the appetites and desires the subtlety of the race rose to its highest in his profession so skilfully had he to adapt himself to the weaknesses of his clients he knew all the secrets of the household and built his omnipotence upon them he had a feminine manner and a feminine vein in his character judgment and action through instinct and a passion for the minutenesses of life and yet he piloted his way into the mastery of the family through the women who in spite of his womanliness adored him for he had learned by long tradition and training how to make them abandon themselves body and soul to his direction their pains he knew how to soothe by anodynes their troubles and sorrows he made them forget by either spiritual or physical consolation he surrounded them with an atmosphere of belief in themselves and him as the two select of the world he quarantined them from all other influences by flattery or pyrannity he dosed them with well-sweetened gossip made powerful by being communicated in confidential whispers and with oaths to secrecy for he had command of all the inner workings of the private life of a neighbourhood and it was one of the wonders of his power that most of the families which he confessionalled were not on speaking terms with one another he was always sacrificing himself to bring about peace and each of them trusted him entirely yet human nature is so prone to jealousy that they refused his mediation and only listened to his soft voice details of the inner life of their foes what would the higher social life have been in aleofan without this silent-footed intermediary the chemist fulfilled the same important function for the poorer classes he sold the pyrannity that the government factories made but he was restricted to using it for the cure of diseases and the assuagement of pain and most of the grown-up population had a disease to be cured and a pain to be assuaged every day so sorely smitten were they by fate so long-suffering were they 
it was one of the sights of the city to see the calaco or the warehouses of the chemists at night crowds pressed into them by one door with agony depicted on their faces whilst out from the other sauntered patient after patient with a wandering nerveless smile upon his face a jaunty loose-gated fashion of throwing his limbs and a whiff of pyrenidi in his breath for if it was not the medicine itself it was the medium of it and he had left his pain behind him in the store little wonder that the chemist was a man of such power in aleofan he was generally of strong build and swaggering gait and showed his masterfulness in every gesture for he had often severe muscular duties to perform it seems that some of his patients of the most abandoned and criminal classes after being cured of their pain or sickness refused to leave his warehouse seized by an evil spirit i was told they would foam at the mouth kick and bite and it took great strength to tie them hand and foot and eject them some of my friends in the marble city mourned over this possession by wandering demons of the air but they said it was only the degraded whose bodies they entered the profession was one of the most lucrative in aleofan for one of its essentials was great physical strength and this was rarely to be found in the gilded classes i could pick out chemists in a crowd by their brawny frame bold gait and short well-knit stature their faces were as a rule strong and corrugated with muscle intent self-control they looked with an open and almost arrogant light in their eyes most of them i was told were descendants of a few survivors from a wreck on the coast and there was occasionally a lurking fear that with their great influence over the lower part of the city their strong will and their powerful squat frame they might seize the reins of government but this was prevented by dividing their interests and sowing dissensions and jealousies amongst them the very largeness of the incomes they made lowered their ambitions towards money-making and this made them fly asunder like globules of quicksilver but the contrast between them and the rest of the upper classes in physical appearance was very striking the aleofanians proper stooped in the shoulders of their long thin bodies like bulrushes before the wind not for weight of the head they bore for it was small though well proportioned and by various fashions and contrivances they managed to convey a false impression of its size of their eyes it was impossible to make out the shape or colour for they peeped through a thin slit between the eyelids doubtless afraid of the glare of the sun their nose ran like a sharp promontory down towards the middle of their upper lip as if to help in covering the enormous aperture of the mouth and its thick sensuous lips these last i could see in the women but the men concealed them by all their hair they could grow on their long-drawn faces and their hair inclined as a rule to red their gait formed perhaps the deepest contrast to that of the chemists they walked like ghosts with a feline scarcely perceptible footfall and nothing could take them unawares or startle them out of it yet ever and again some of them would pull themselves up and put on a bustling gait and bluff demeanour that completely belied their personal appearance it was like a cat masquerading as a lion 
but they conducted themselves with great dignity in all the relations of their life. They would have no part in the gross candor of the chemists. Their whole demeanor and language were ordered with full regard to decency and decorum. They shrank with horror from lewdness and intrigue, and refused to acknowledge the existence of libertines amongst them. I never heard so much solemn and devout feeling expressed as on this topic, and at the corner of every street the attention of the passer-by was arrested by placards quoting in huge letters from their sacred books the noblest maxims on the sweetness of a chaste life. I could find no one to confess that there was such a thing in the island as a man who was libidinous, but every girl who broke this rule of morality was thrust forth from house and home. Scores of such outcasts I saw flaunting in brilliant robes along the streets. They had all the appearance of living in great luxury. But I was assured they were supported by secret funds sent by the inhabitants of a vicious island close at hand. And I could believe it. For no one ever spoke to them, and ladies as they passed drew their skirts in whilst gentlemen after brushing past them would rub their coat-sleeves as if from contamination. It was only the great chastity of the people that permitted these creatures to remain in their island. Nothing could surpass the horror and loathing which the Aleophanians exhibited towards them. It was painful indeed to see the agony the notables had to endure in suffering them to remain. How devoted they were to charity! It was, I felt, their life, their all. They refused to do half the mischief that there was opportunity of doing to others. Every moment, every energy, was spent in restricting it to its faction. So much destructive force was latent in them, so much destructive opportunity lay to hand, that they might have annihilated the reputation and peace of mind of all their fellow-citizens. How proud they were of their fraternal love in sowing only a few slanders and dissensions per day, and these, too, only to discipline the haughty and too fortunate, or to keep their own faculties from rusting. It was the same with their benevolence. Nothing could surpass the nobleness and care with which they dispensed it. Half their revenues they gave away, but not in reckless alms. They were too wise and self-controlling for that they knew too much of the economic laws of life and respected them too well to violate even the least of them so they never forgot discipline in giving to those who needed they carefully exacted as much work from them as would pay the principal and lest the kindness should lapse from memory and leave no impression on the life and conduct half as much again to what infinite trouble they put themselves to see that these laws of nature should never be outraged by them. The great troops of the lower classes were fed and clothed and cared for by each of them for years, whilst they were trying to repay those noble eleemosynary gifts and satisfy the laws of economics. Nor must it be held an inconsistency in them that they thought money the root of all evil as against those very laws. They despised it and hated it. And lest it should do to their neighbors the harm for which they feared it and loathed it, they gathered as much of it into their hands as they could. 
they swallowed the devil again according to their own proverbial phrase as the best means of preventing the mischief he might do to others it was one of the most altruistic of their principles they considered this accumulation of wealth in the hands of a few lest the many should suffer they could hedge the monster round and narrow his sphere of operations and every provision had been made by the state for centuries that he should not approach the masses with his foul influence it was the gilded classes of the marble city that could alone withstand the evils he worked and amongst them therefore he was imprisoned they were so to speak the turnkeys of this vampire of commercial races and in their duties they were all vigilant lest he should escape and work irremediable havoc amongst the rest of the nation End of chapter eight